0: Hello everybody, well, uh, hi there, Uh, we're going to start the session, my name is Brian Rotman from the comparative studies department, I'm the uh, union representative for the Camouflage Widowers Association, Uh, yeah, well, um, we're finally going to get back into action, we guys, okay, Um, I'm delighted to to introduce our three speakers this morning. Uh, Dan Gray, over on the far right, is the Resident Scenic Designer and Interim Chair of the uh, OSU Department of Theatre. Besides approving budgets, which of course is great power, uh, for the Camouflage Project, he collaborated with the team as the Scenic Designer and helped flesh out the the physical world of the piece. Uh, He's designed, he tells me, over 200 professional and university productions. Um, so that would indicate there was a widow as well, <laughs> <laughs> knocking around. Um, Matt Lewis is in the middle. He's, uh, he's at ACAD, the Advanced Computer Center for Art and Design, which has had an enormous uh, uh, part that's play, that, to play in this production. And uh, Matt uh, collaborated some years ago with Leslie... Um, will now tell me the title. of Sleep Deprivation, Sleep deprivation Chamber. Deprivation by? In 2003. By? Adrian Kennedy. Adrian Kennedy is what I didn't. Adrian Kennedy, which was, a, a, again, a sort of amazing and inventive high-tech uh, production, um, which had all sorts of uh, plaudits from everywhere. Um, he's in the middle. And then there's Beth Gattelman here, who's the associate curator at the TRI, the Theatre Research Institute, um, and she's a freelance director. Her show, Eurydice, is the last night tonight, so if anybody hasn't seen it, they should. It's a wonderful show. Uh, It's a great play. Um, And she's interested, she tells me, in the history of magic and conjuring. So um, that might produce a question or two afterwards. So uh, each one will speak for about 20 minutes, and then there'll be uh, about 15 minutes uh, for questioning because things are getting a bit rushed, apparently. Um, So we have to cut down. Is that right, that you need that cut down? Okay, so that's it, and I'll get out of the way. So who's first, is that you? Me, but I need part of that. What do you need? sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't realize. Hi everybody,
1: uh, as Brian said, I'm Dan Gray, uh, and it, it was interesting uh, coming in at this point in the symposium, and uh, uh, Rita said it yesterday a bit about, uh, I'm not sure what's left to talk about, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are a couple of things here that uh, are are a bit unique. Uh, it also occurred to me this morning as I was getting ready for this is, is that uh, I'm actually in a bit of personal camouflage this morning. Uh normally on a Saturday, beautiful Saturday morning such as this, you would be hard-pressed to find me uh in a jacket um, <laughs> standing at a podium. Uh more than likely out mucking around in our garden or chasing a little white ball around uh on a trimmed green field, uh not in my plus fours though probably. So um, one of the, the interesting pieces, and part of the jumping off point in all of this discussion was uh, you know, the idea of uh, people who were doing theater who were making camouflage, and although uh, it seemed an interesting notion, clearly it didn't end up in the production, right? In part because it's not particularly dramatic in terms of uh, something to move a, a story along. Uh, and so it found its way into the exhibition and I'm going to talk a bit about it today uh, because there were really interesting people working in this field and making uh, camouflage for the war effort uh, and as Roy said I mean there are all sorts of theater folks and theater types making things. Um, one of the curiosities of this is it's a little difficult to document the actual work that stenographers did during the war uh, for several reasons. Um, One was, first of all, the work was considered secretive, uh, and that, uh, as Harper Goff, who's one of the scenographers that I'm gonna talk about, uh, noted, that we were told not to tell anyone, including our wives, what we were doing. Okay, So, so they were making this stuff and then not really being able to talk about it until considerably later. Another was that these were, the people I'm gonna talk about were highly successful uh, professional designers who were doing their part, essentially doing their part for the war effort. Uh, this was not what they were going to be known for, okay, or remembered for. Uh, so th- there, there was little compulsion to document. I mean, Joe melziner wasn't out there with a camera documenting, you know, this this field he had camouflaged. I mean, he's documenting some of the other things that I'm going to show you. So. To try to tie specific things like the tree that Roy showed us, or, or some of those specific things, to specific designers, uh, gets a little tricky. So, um, and in fact, some designers were a bit amused by the notion that somebody might actually be interested in this part of their career. Okay, like I said, this was something that they did as, as uh, their part of the war effort, and, uh, Actually, the fact came to light when uh, Dr. Ron Naverson, who's a scenic design professor at SIL- uh, Southern Illinois University, when he did his 1989 dissertation on the scenographer as camouflage, uh he got several bemused reactions of, you know, why would you want to know about this when I designed X, Y, and Z? Uh, so uh, there were this some sort of bemusement there and much of my research is based on the work that Naverson did and so graciously shared with uh, Mary Tarantino and myself so to kick off so the first question I want to try to answer is uh, what the hell is a sonographer? Uh, and historically a sonographer is a theatrical designer who designs all who designed all visual aspects of a production and this would include at the time scenic lighting and costume design the notion of sound design although it was part of theater as a, a design field doesn't come into its own until um, much later and and this is uh, more of a european construct uh, that you know we had these artists although there were certainly scenographers uh... here in the u.s. and in fact uh, our former faculty member russell hastings uh... who i uh, replaced after he retired was a scenographer, in the truest sense that he did scenery, costumes and occasionally lighting design. Okay? In the US this has become more narrowly defined, uh, more of a tendency towards special, uh, specialization, uh, so it often gets defined as one who designs and paints scenery. Okay which is more what I do. Uh, I've been trained to do lighting design, yes, I've actually been trained to do costume design. You don't want me designing any of those (laughs) things, okay? So I've become fairly specialized. Uh, And this is often the case. Uh, You find fewer and fewer true scenographers uh, here in the U.S., although uh, most of the people I'm going to talk about, uh, particularly the first three designers, were indeed uh, true sonographers, including the American designers. Uh, So I'm going to use this term more generically today to include art directors and production designers uh, for film as well, and we'll throw them all under the big umbrella of uh, the sonographer. So the five people I'm going to talk about, and there are certainly more uh, designers who were doing things, but these were uh, five big names that, that jumped to the forefront. They're Joe Melziner who's a, a, an American designer, uh, the British designer Oliver Messel, uh, Donald Owenschlager, also an American, Harry Horner who uh, immigrated to the U.S. Uh, from Europe, but did the work that he did was with uh, the U.S. Army, so we're going to put him under the uh, the U.S. and uh, Harper Goff, who is uh, an, an interesting artist, interesting guy. Uh, he, uh, well, we'll get to that when we get to that. So, uh, so first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about who these people are and uh, what their career was outside of. Uh, their, their work with the Army and camouflage. And Joe Melziner is pr- probably one of the most prominent designers of his generation, and he and Owen Slogger and Lee Simonson really changed the face of scenic design, production design, uh, in the U.S. Uh, at this time. Uh, he designed over 200 Broadway shows, including just a few here, Guys and Dolls, A Streetcar Named Desire, uh, uh, Street Scene, and his iconographic design for *Death of a Salesman*. Um, he received five Tony Awards. Uh, and interesting, looking at this, there was one of the Tony Awards was for essentially an entire Broadway season. There were like five shows that he was uh, nominated. It was basically a group, you know. And the award for everything this year goes to Joe Melziner. <laughs> Uh, so that, that tells you something about where he where he was as as an artist. Um, he was comfortable in working in many styles, but is perhaps most remembered for his poetic realism. And uh, in terms of a, a definition of poetic realism, I mean we all know what realism looks like, right? You would design this, and it would look exactly like this. Melziner was taking pieces and parts and indications and representations and kind of tying them together in a way that suggested, for instance, the frame of the Lohman family house in uh, Death of a Salesman. Um, but the walls were covered in, in scrims and gauzes. And this was not entirely new technology, but it was uh, certainly used to great effect here. Uh, and uh, so here are two examples. These are renderings of uh, Mel Zener's Death of a Salesman. Uh, the one up above with uh, you know, sort of leafy patterns on the scrim that we could then uh, do bleed-throughs. And then down below, you get to the interior of the house. So you see this sort of realistic core of this, but then this kind of ephemeral frame uh, around it. So that's an idea of this notion of poetic realism. This thing is often imitated. I mean, people do their homage to this, and as somebody, you know, I've never designed this play, but if you're if anybody who's studied scenic design, knows what this looks like. So it's really hard to get away from it, and it really works. I mean, that's the thing about it, you know. So, um, so that, that's the sort of work that uh, Mel Zener was doing. Yeah. Um, in 1942 at the age of 41, Melzina receives a commission as a major in the army reserves. like I say he 's 41 years old. he 's got a, a serious career going. so he takes his time uh, to uh, you know, put his effort uh, toward uh, what 's going on with the war effort. and uh, you know in, in, in his book, one of the things he talks about was, you know it was all great, it was all good, but he was basically losing money, hand over fist, doing this. but that was okay. Uh, he's later transferred uh, to the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, which eventually becomes the CIA. Another reason he's not really talking a lot about this work that he's doing. Um, he, along with others, forms the Camouflage Society of Professional Stage Designers, and this includes 20 uh, professional stage designers, uh, predominantly designers in New York. Okay? Oops. Um, a few things about uh, some quotes from Mel Zener in and the work that he did. In uh, his New York Times obit, uh, Mel Zener is quoted as saying, "On stage, my job is to make people grasp the situation as quickly as possible. In camouflage, my job was to keep them from grasping it at all." Okay, and I find this notion interesting, and will add my own observation that in scenic design, we work really hard to make sure that the actor is the focus of the attention, okay, and doesn't blend into the background. As Roy said, we don't, you know, you don't want it to be part of the wallpaper, okay. Uh, And we talk about this a lot with costume design and scenic design and, and, you know, and I've seen it happen where somebody has a dress on that looks like it's the same pattern as the drape and they walk in front of the drape and all you see is their head, (laughs) okay. Which is great for camouflage. You might want a little more for that, but not so good on the stage. Okay, so uh, it's, it's, it, although there are a lot of theat- theatrical uh, skills and practices that can go into the art of making camouflage, um, I mean, I've made fake trees. You know, I've, I've made all sorts of things out of stuff that's not supposed to really be that thing, and made it look like something completely different and, you know, hiding whatever it is underneath it. Uh, But the natural impulse, of course, is for us to make it so you can see and appreciate what's going on. So this is a a bit of a curious juxtaposition. Uh, In a New York Herald Tribune article on Melzino, the writer notes that his theatrical training was ideal for his new work as a camouflage. His knowledge of quick effects and limited or substitute materials was invaluable, as were his knowledge of lighting, principles of landscaping, architecture, and hasty improvisation. You're out there in the field. You don't have quite what you need, so you start looking around. We do that all the time in theater, right? Um, And two important aspects of uh, camouflage, self-preservation, and protection of equipment on the ground were natural for a scenic designer who knew how to solve them using light, shadow, color, texture, blending, use of drapes, netting, and decoys. Back in full stride in the theater, Mel Zener's work on Dream Girl—not the musical Dream Girls—illustrates okay, how an expert in the art of camouflage can reverse the same principles and be an expert at the art of revelation. Okay. So that's a very brief uh, bit on Mel Zener. Uh, Oliver Messel, uh, who was one of Great Britain's leading theater designers uh, from the 30s to the mid-50s. And Messel was really noted for his lavish painterly and poetic, again, styles, this word gets tossed around a lot, and colorful, opulent uh, costumes. Big, colorful uh, productions. Um, his 1946 designs for Sleeping Beauty uh, at the Royal Opera House in London uh, which was extraordinary on a a lot of levels uh, becomes known as the Messel production of Sleeping Beauty and and part of the reason it was extraordinary is people have talked about the shortage of materials coming out of the war uh, and you know kind of rebuilding things and so he designs this beautiful uh, big painterly uh, production for Sleeping Beauty which goes through uh, you know, it's revived over and over and over again uh, at at the uh, Royal Opera House into the into the mid '70s, and then it's reproduced in 1976 for ABT here in the U.S. and um, it was one of the the first uh, ballets which ends up on television. So I don't know, Nina, have you ever seen this? Okay, curious. Um, Messel also worked in film here in the U.S. and in the U.K., and also won a Tony Award uh, uh, for his Broadway production of House of Flowers. Uh, Interestingly, uh, after the mid-50s with the rise of kitchen sink uh, realism in in Britain, Messel's work kind of goes out of favor uh, because he's designing in, in this, you know, like I say, rather large painterly style. Uh, And here are a couple of examples. One at the top is uh, a a photograph from a revival of the 1946 uh, design for uh, Sleeping Beauty. And I apologize for the resolution of some of these pictures. It's not your eyes. They were this big when I found them. So, uh, and uh, down here. In the lower, my right uh, is a, a version of a Midsummer Night's Dream that he did at the Old Vic with uh, Tyrone Guthrie, who, of course, goes on to found the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Uh, the other one is an unidentified model. I just liked the model, so, <laughs> and I th- thought it was a nice showed a nice range of his work. Messel's greatest contributions were his elaborate designs to disguise pillboxes. And again, I regret that. I was unable to unearth uh, photographs of some of these um, on the uh, England's East Coast. And these were small, hastily built, uh, you know, there's a term I could use which is probably inappropriate, Uh, but they were strong brick structures Uh, (laughs) uh, built on England's uh, east coast. And, and these were supposed to be the fortifications which were going to, you know, help uh, protect in the eventual invasion uh, from uh, the Germans. And So these things, these things, there were like 6,000 of these around the country that were built. And, and Messel's job was uh, to disguise these things. So a few examples included haystacks, uh, but he got into you know he's a designer so ornamental fountains, Greek pavilions, castles and ruins, and roadside cafes. Um, and uh, I, I love this little tidbit. Uh, he designed he did one in a in a town which is aptly named Fakenham, or Fakenham probably. <laughs> but uh, I found that curious. And he also worked with uh, Julian Trevelyan. Um, interestingly I, I read one place where even after the thre- the imminent threat of invasion seemed to have gone away and uh they you know but kept building these things but he was still allowed to uh continue to decorate these things and they became sort of uh you know i suppose they were installation art of their time and you know people <laughs> just came to see what messel had done with these things you know so which I thought was kind of interesting. Okay. Um, and here's an, an, another example of, of, of something, an actual piece of Messel's work. Uh, you have a letter where he's describing that uh, the steel wool material that we're using to, de- dec- uh, to uh, disguise these pillboxes really is not effective. And there's this new material, and I've, I have no idea what this material is, uh, called color quartz uh foliage wire screening so you can see here uh that this roll of stuff that he's done this sketch for which is probably similar to the the you know the burlap and things that people have uh, wrapped in here so here we have a little diagram of how you can make your own branch for camouflage okay so uh you take the color cord cut it diagonally uh slice it up and then find yourself a very strong sturdy branch okay and then start I'm putting this stuff on the branch. here's your pillbox, and of course, now it's gone. Okay. Magic of theater uh, so uh, this this is probably one of the more basic examples. I would love to have seen that fountain. I'm telling so. Okay, uh Donald Owenslager, another American designer, uh designed scenery and lighting for over 140 Broadway productions and designed, you know, more than 300 productions in his career. I mean, Zener also designed, you know, over 300. So when when Brian says I've I've done just over 200, I've got a ways to go uh to catch up to these folks. Uh Owenslager and I It's curious, one of the the most famous designers in in the US, it's really hard to find a picture of him, so this,
2: I believe,
1: that guy there in the middle from the 315th Airborne Division uh, is identified as D.M. Owenschlager, so I'm I'm saying it's him. I know for you historians in the room, you can help me with that. he was comfortable in a range of styles from realism to expressionism, uh, so he really worked uh, you know quite a, quite a range of and also frankly pretty commercial ventures you know a lot of these Broadway productions that these guys were designing uh, had a you know, very serious commercial look to them. He taught at the Yale School of Drama for forty six years, which probably was enough to win him the bronze star but uh, <laughs> He, uh, he, he, he receives a Bronze Star in 58 for his work as a camouflage officer. Uh, he won a Tony Award uh, for best scenic design for uh, the play a majority of one in 59. Uh, he along with Mel Zener is one of the founding members of the uh, Camouflage Society of Professional Stage Designers. Okay. Uh, And here are just a few examples of Owenschlager's work, and you can see there there is quite a range here uh, from his 1939 uh, architectural, sort of abstracted architectural, uh, Tristan and Isolde at the Met, uh, the the 1933 uh, production of the birds in this very graphic uh, sort of uh, style. and a, a very famous production of, uh, of Mice and Men in 1937. And this is the uh, paint elevation for the backdrop uh, for the Salinas River. So you can see, again, quite, quite a range of, of work here. Owen um, Owenschlager discovered that the temporary characteristics of stage design and camouflage are synonymous, with the same tricks that one conceals what exists uh, that one conceals what exists and by the corollary reveals what does not exist, okay? So he comes at this from a little different place uh, than Mel Zener did. Um, and, oh, I, I left off a couple of things on Mel Zener, but uh, I'll just I'll get this with uh, Owenschlager. Uh, Mel Ziener, uh, uh was working on an airfield and they decided that they would use uh, some asphalt that was, had kind of a matte finish uh, and then spray paint that with a, a matte finish and a camouflage pattern uh, which very uh, readily disguised the airstrip. Which is great, except it really <laughs> disguised the airstrip. So. Um, although they say that, uh, that, you know, Joe assured them that the, the uh, pilots who f- were familiar with the area would have no problem with this. Okay? And the record shows that no flyer was lost over Richmond, at least not permanently. Um, uh, Melziner also built, uh, they built uh, basically sets, uh, replicas of a French village complete with sniper posts, dugouts, and booby traps similar to those trainees might encounter in combat. And this became so popular to the VIPs passing through that it became kind of a local tourist attraction. Um, and carefully edited versions of the display were presented to civilians. So anyway, uh, so Owenschlager has a similar situation uh, in, uh, at the Scribner Air Base in uh, uh, the air base in Scribner, Nebraska, that they camouflaged uh, satellite training field so effectively that the following day the commanding general pronounced it too hazardous in ordered that no more flying fields be camouflaged. Similar reasons, too dangerous for the trainee bomb squads, they couldn't find the fields. So they were good at what they were doing. Um, they just... Am I at time? Oh crap. Can I do two quick things? Okay, because you have to see this next part, sorry. Okay, Harry Horner, uh, uh, art director, uh, he's the guy who emigrated from uh, He grew grew up in Vienna, emigrates to the U.S., uh, moves to Hollywood, joins the U.S. Army as a World War II as a technical sergeant, his Academy Award for the heiress and the hustler, uh, also nominated for They Shoot Horses, Don't They, also a member. uh, I was going to play Can You Identify the People in These Photographs, but we don't have time for that. (laughs) Um, And also worked with Max Reinhardt uh, in, in Vienna before he came to the States. But one of the things that I really wanted to tell you is this is not the first camouflage project that was ever done, OK? Horner uh, works on a couple of uh, touring productions. One is a scenic designer for the stage version of Winged Victory. The other is he writes and produces a musical about the importance of camouflage called You Bet Your Life, OK, before the Marx Brothers, uh, or Groucho and his, and his show. Uh, no record of the music production exists except these lyrics. Uh, it's so confusing, but so amusing, the ruses one uses are nature's own scheme. And you'll be glad I'm not singing this. But. Though, we're not, though we're not mirages, we're all camouflages. Things are not quite what they seem. No, things are never quite what they seem. And with that, I'll wrap up. And if we have time, I'll show you the rest later. So. <laughs>
3: Just work. Okay, um, this is a title I came up with a long time ago, but I'm going to talk about um, a few different things. Uh, but first, I want to start with um, a little bit of history that um, I think a couple of you may know about, but most probably don't. Um, There's a, a young man fought in World War II, age of 20, came back, um, and uh, 35 years later started uh, one of the first computer graphics companies. I'm going to show you a bunch of computer graphics here. Um, but one of the first in the world. Um, he started up with this group. And um, as you can see, this is right out back. Thank you, Anna. Um, and uh, it was actually, um, I asked Maria to check, but this room that would be the the room that uh, Cranston Surrey, um, Chuck, that Chuck Surrey started, um, people would be developing software for the first time in the world uh, down where the reception area is, uh, they'd be coming in here, the one frame buffer, the one display uh, that they could all use to look at their work as it was slowly rendering would be in this room that they'd be fighting over and so on, offices upstairs. And I thought that was a, a really interesting, this building and, and this room actually and, uh, and so on where a lot of the computer graphics we're going to see and talk about were sort of uh, particularly uh, modeling and so on. Um, produced for the first time. Um, it, it reminded me a little bit what it must have been like right then because they sort of had free reign. They had to invent whatever they wanted to do back then in the early 80s. And uh, it, it sort of, when I was first reading about the, uh, you know, the SOE and so on and was reading these stories of the, uh, the engineers in the back room and all their failures, the things they came up with, the culture of well, what if we made an exploding rat? You know, it was sort of, <laughs> that sort of, let's try this, let's see what works, and some things did and some things didn't. Um, brief aside, because I don't know if it's mentioned, and I told a couple of you, uh, this guy in here, um, who uh, teaches over at um, Columbus State now, uh, was telling me, coincidentally, when I was telling him about this project, that his, uh, his mom revealed um, in the 60s uh, to them that he, she had, uh, during the whirl, War worked in Bletchley Park um, as a, a translator um, and she had a very distinctive memory now I'm of course wondering about people's memories but um, very distinctive memory of uh, Churchill coming in and in one of these discussions about you will not talk about this outside this room um, telling them all or I'll I'll shoot you in the head personally myself which I thought was a really striking interesting memorable sort of thing. Um, these folks when they uh, made use of um, the computers they were using. You know, they were hundreds of thousands of dollars, these computers. And of course, now, um, you know, I have a friend who uh, will have a backyard party or something and, um, you know, many of the people in the room have a, you know, an iPhone or something like that. And much, much more as we've been talking about computer power and these sorts of things um, for doing the kind of illusions. She, you know, opens up an app. She spent 99 cents on and does what by their standards would be amazing graphical sort of capabilities. She has an app that puts fish in people's hands. Fabulous, you know. Uh, real useful stuff. Um, you know, the party tricks for what was um, previously uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, equipment. And um, I want to talk a little, lo- that's going to be kind of a theme through some of the stuff I'm going to talk about. What's, what's sort of becoming possible for us in this sort of realm of illusion. Um, so we love to make complicated computer graphics. I uh, like to write software, generate, um, you know, really complex things and so on, but it, it always sort of ends up on a screen, right? Um, and so lately we've um, been starting to see, uh, many of you may have seen some of these sorts of uh, projection mapped, um, sort of, uh, they sort of fit within the realm we talk of as augmented reality, these, uh, these things where you project onto buildings and surfaces, often it's large uh, European castles and things like that, where the, the computer graphics mesh with uh, the architecture and uh, over the last five years in particular at festivals and so on usually sync to music uh, these things have been happening and they're very very spectacle you know look we can do this look we can do that kind of, kind of deal um, so we've been talking about and interested in how how might we do this sort of thing on a a, a more interesting and meaningful scale um, and this is my one painful PowerPoint bullet point slide I promise not to have any more but um, what are you know? What are some of the challenges? Why don't we see a lot of this sort of stuff like the thingamabob and, and so on? And a problem is um, you need to, as we'll discuss later, um, match up your sort of virtual computer graphics stuff with physical real-world stuff. And you either then have to, um, as some people spend really large quantities of money doing, scan like a whole building and get a perfect 3D model of it. Um, you can sit there and do painstaking tweaking uh, uh, As some of you know well, to match things up uh, perfectly with geometry, or you can, as I'm going to talk about, um, fabricate uh, a model of what you need that you want to um, project onto. Um, I've been working for the last couple years with some of these, starting to work with some of these fabrication technologies. Um, The idea being getting some of this computer graphics sort of off the screen into the real world. So this is um, what's called a MakerBot. How many people? Uh, quick show of hands have seen any of the press about this sort of thing lately? No okay. what was it called? Uh, this is a MakerBot. makerbot, okay yeah, New York Times article. I think Brian handed me one the other day, and so on so previously, as per the computer graphics stuff I was talking about, it used to cost you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for any of these sorts of devices and now, um, you know this showed up in a couple boxes uh, a couple of years ago um, for about a um, eight, nine hundred dollars uh, as a bunch of parts that I spent a weekend bolting together and so on, and uh, then all of a sudden I had this printer sitting on next to my desk in my office that um, if I want to I can take one of our computer graphics objects and hit print and out will come something like this teapot over here on the side. The problem is the scale of this thing, you see that little white platform there in the middle, it's about the size of a cupcake. That's about how big, not real convenient for sort of theater production kind of stuff. But um, a, a really interesting process, it, um, you know, think about a glue gun sort of thing, sort of extruding, melting some plastic. This uh, little metal tip up there is really hot, so there's this spaghetti of plastic going down in, and it just kind of, it's like glue coming out, only this little table moving back and forth that, you know, I to screw together and so on is being controlled by the computer that says put some here, put some there, and gradually over 15 minutes, you know, I've got a bust of Beethoven, let's say. Um, So this is really cool and this is, you know, $800. So that's pretty amazing. Um, So there's been a lot of press lately, tons and tons of articles on, um, you know, printing out a Stradivarius or something like that, which is not hypothetical, it's a real example. Unfortunately, to print something about that big, you're talking about $1,000 worth of material and so on. So again, not something that you casually can experiment with um, and so on, but definitely seen as a a sort of um, way things are going. Um, Don't even need the $900 sort of thing. If you you do have the ability to make a 3D model or something, there's uh, also sort of a movement of uh, whereas it's always been the case, not always, but for a long time that you could take your model and upload it to some service firm or, or mail them something and they would say for $20,000 we'll make that for you, right? Now it's becoming the case that sort of this uh, culture, we were talking to somebody about Etsy and sites like that last night um, where people are uh, making things available on the web for other people to buy so I could upload this this very complicated model not have to ship things to people, people could go to a website and one of these could be printed out and delivered to them, I never have to touch anything. But these sorts of service bureaus are becoming affordable and so on. So what if we want to go larger though? What if hypothetically somebody came up with a cow couch model and you wanted to try and make one, what are your, what are your options? Um, so I started looking at what sort of ways could I maybe slice up the model in different ways with some software and uh, and try to produce some things. Like better example, what if somebody wanted a duck, right? Um, so Jeremy makes a wonderful duck model. I get something like this, it's a mesh of, of polygons and geometry. So our next step is then to try and make some software, often this sort of thing is done by hand, but that's kind of hard to tweak and adjust when somebody says, can you make it more this or more that? So You generate some software that can go and figure out where slices should be and and go to make this sort of thing. Um, You go and take it to a laser cutter of which there's a few on campus and and also a technology that is down in the $4,000 $10,000 range so you know not more expensive than a a fancy computer might be. fit it together and you've got something like this. Still not couch sized, right? Still not theater prop kind of sort of thing. Great for the thing that uh, is sitting on the table sort of um, prop, you could be very precise with it, Uh, one of the uh, early early studies people uh, worked on here. and aside to all of you who've said, oh, that's a great duck, I, I want one of those ducks, uh, promise Mary, yes, please keep the duck, thank you. Um, but uh, brief aside, uh, fascinating sort of um, little thing that's happening, uh, again, I can upload this file to uh, different websites and if you happen to have a laser cutter, which I'm Gonna guess you don't, uh, you could go and download the duck or a clock or an octopus, a bucket of octopi, or whatever you wanted here, um, thousands and thousands of things that people are just making available, which is a really bizarre concept if you think about it. There's this little digital file you can download and it's not now that you have an image you can use in your PowerPoint presentation or something, it's now that you have an object that you can print out in your, you know, house or something. Pinoco another site that, and I, I swear I'll get around to this, that I can upload that duck file to, and uh, it works more like the other thing I mentioned. If you want a duck, you just go to the website, you click on that. This is probably, you know, five bucks worth of material or something like that, so they might charge you ten bucks, but they mail you a duck kind of thing. You might have to put it together yourself, but that's also pretty magical. So there's endless people who are designing a, uh, you know, an end table or an echidna, echidna, I can never remember, clock, Um, and uh, you can... um, order one of those, it'll arrive, you assemble it, that kind of thing. Couch size, that's what we want though, right? Um, We want to get that big. And the laser cutter that you can afford or that there's a few of around here is about this big. I guess I could assemble a jillion pieces. But better um, if you want something that's human scale. is to go to uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about, uh, which is this, uh, this CNC routing stuff that, um, that was magic to me. Another brief aside, um, projection mapping uh, while we're in this, this neighborhood here. A definite research outcome, I would say, for this project has been, I think you'd agree, the difficulty of explaining projection mapping to people. <laughs>
2: um,
3: and and I was talking with Jeremy about this yesterday after uh, after he spoke and we're still no no closer I think on uh, we've got some new keywords that some people go oh um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking in terms of perspective drawing as a, a way of doing this but you I don't know if any of you remember yesterday Jeremy was showing beautiful graphics and he was showing what they did and at some point he had to speak the sentence that we all have to get to where he said so what you do is. You take the virtual camera and you align the aperture with the, and everybody just went, you know. And and he, and he we've done this enough time that he said, you know, and I, and I saw it and I felt it. And so I just went, yeah, okay, I'm going to move on. I'm not even going to try and explain that anymore. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, we, we, uh, at Vita's suggestions, we were taking these pictures uh, as maybe yet another thing to try to, to sort of... Um, Explain why this thing works and what it is. I, I can say the words. You just make the uh, the, the the virtual camera, and everybody goes oh, no, virtual camera. The place that you're rendering your scene from. Rendering. What's that? The place the pictures made from. You make that the same as your projector. Um, here, maybe you can see. So here's the thing. The thingamabob projected just on the floor with no thingamabob there. It's a little blown out, but you maybe can make out that it kind of looks like a perspective drawing from the perspective of the projector. Okay, So that's the picture we need to make, that we need to come up with. And then when we shine that down and we put the same object in that space that was drawn, perfectly aligned with the lens angle and the field view and all that stuff, stuff lines up. So here's a picture without the front pieces on and you can see the top pieces align the bottom pieces are kind of bleeding down onto the floor, right? Because the the front pieces are not there yet. So I don't know if that helps a little bit more with why does this thing all kind of line up and work. Um, I took this video, uh, and the second half of it is uh, really useful. The first half is kind of funny because I was all like, um, "This is iPhone video," and I was trying to be Mr. Uh, steady cam all stealthily (laughs) walking Uh, and it's the worst video I've ever shot in my life I think in terms of the uh, Janet that we were talking about the sick making sort of uh, but um, what's really useful about this projection mapping stuff and I'll settle down here and there um, is that uh, it's really more a thing you can walk around and look at from different angles and I wanted to show this and I think I actually want to and stop this mid-range, but right here, if you look at how this is laying flat on this surface, which it, it's a really, it's like, why wouldn't it be? But it's coming at some crazy diagonal angle from up there. And one of the, the really curious things about projection mapping, and hopefully you can see how all these forms are kind of wrapping around the surface and so on, is um, it, it looks so natural when it's working well. So it's one of those things that's kind of like, yeah, why not? That's, that's how it should look sort of thing as opposed to it sort of stops being amazing in, in some sense. Uh, you kind of forget that it's somebody could stand in front of this thing and there would not be a shadow because it's a, some weird angle. It's a very curious sort of uh, phenomenon. So we want to make one of these things. Um, turns out all you need is a $15,000 machine. Uh, again not a, not a $100,000 machine or a big contract from a big company or something and there's a few of these on campus um, This it's called a ShopBot for example, for one of these. Um, You know, we've got another model. This is one of Jeremy's parts for that sort of thing. Uh, You could use the software that came with that thing, or or I had to get some other things working, so I figured out how to slice up these models into nice little thin pieces that could be fit together. Um, You know, you stick some foam, you go to Lowe's, you buy a a load full of foam. I'm not going to make this a wood shop talk, but, you go and the the router goes and you know is under computer control, so there's this fancy spinning high speed bit sort of thing, and then you wait and you wait and you wait and eventually it comes back and a sixteenth of an inch later you know it gets shaved off another sort of thing, and two hours later you've got something that looks like this for a two foot by four foot kind of thing where it's carved away all this stuff, and you accumulate the stuff and and uh, you know this is sort of the the process that, uh, thankfully, this project gave me an opportunity to learn. So I feel like now I can print out big stuff. This is great. Um, I'm
1: glad to see you're wearing
3: a mask. Yeah. Right? So about that, we usually in computer graphics we don't have to worry about getting a lung full of blue foam or cutting <laughs> off our fingers or high electrical stuff. So y- you guys in your world, uh, this is this is a whole new. Razors and particulates and electricity. whole new world for me. Um, But it's great because now once having gone through a a lengthy process of this, now something like the factory model that you saw is um, confidently a couple days worth of work. uh, You know, three or four of those sheets and a few hours and uh, that's really fabulous. So thanks for that opportunity. Um, And I also need to say thanks very much to the the scenery artists, Carla, and the rest of the crew who were uh, very, very instrumental in uh, the painstaking sanding and uh, painting and gluing of uh, of all this stuff. Um, so the last piece you saw I want to talk about briefly. For all that other stuff, um, I was a pain in the neck to Vita and Jeremy and so on in terms of saying, yeah, could you remake that part of the thingamabob a little bit so the back part doesn't curve back at five degrees because the router hates that and could you tweak it like this and adjust this. For this thing, at the end of the you know last week of whatever, it was like oh j- just just make it I'll figure it out. You're busy, it- it's fine. Well, uh, so I got the, all this convoluted, crazy uh, you know parts that come up and twist and bend in ways that that none of these fabrication processes were were friendly about. So I ended up you know. Maybe maker botting this bit on the 3 d printer and then cutting this part in half and making all these sorts of so it was it was a fabulous learning experience things that you guys in theater do routinely and and uh, I'm going to you know carve this until it works kind of thing very very nice though to be able to go from a 3 d model and say uh, give me the parts of this um, going from here here's a model to here uh what you saw in the, in the exhibit, uh, here's the, the slides with the, the bits lining up on the different part. Um, instrumental to that, in addition to Jeremy uh, tweaking all of this thing to make it fit, because it doesn't just work, is uh, I need to again uh, mention Ben Schroeder, who's not here, who's come up a few times, but is traveling this weekend, uh, who's a computer science PhD student, who um, figured out how to uh, get some software to align this stuff to figure out where our virtual camera should be and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, Where we're going with this, and it's 30 seconds left, almost done. Um, Where we're going with this is being able to, uh, with some new, again, very affordable technology, uh, some of you may have heard of this uh, Kinect game toy thing that Microsoft put out. That's just a little camera meant to put on top of your TV so it knows where you are in your living room so you can play games like this instead of, you know, sitting there like that. It's great because it's a $150 scanner that lets us see where stuff is in the world. So we're starting to look at um, some of us, Ben, I, and others, uh, how we can make use of that to sort of uh, instead of having to model stuff from scratch, be able to just point a camera at a room and be able to say, here's a picture of this, here's a picture of that, and now I've got a 3D model of that, and I can go and print that out for, you know, whatever I have, and that's going to be fabulous um, technology. Uh, these sorts of resources shot bots, laser cutters, uh, 3D printers are all part of a, a movement what's been called Fab Labs that's come out of MIT. They're popping up around the world. One of the more prominent ones is actually in Northern Ohio up in uh, uh, Lorraine at the Lorraine uh, uh, County Community College which uh, President Obama was visiting a few years ago. Um, and the amazing thing and the concept behind these Fab Labs is that it costs maybe $60,000 to um, gather all the pieces, pizza- all the parts and pieces I just mentioned um, and make a place and then make that available to the community. So instead of you needing huge startup uh, uh, costs and uh, things like that to uh, manufacture things, uh, somebody can assemble these relatively cheaply small investment and make it available for startups. There's one downtown um, that's actually started called the Columbus Idea Foundry that somebody can become a member uh, for like 25 bucks a month and make use of these sorts of resources on a, an hourly basis. Um, So, uh, I'm out of time. i was going to talk a little bit about where this is going in a final slide. Uh, Augmented reality, doing the kind of stuff that we did under very controlled environment. Um, There's a a big movement in my field uh, for this augmented reality stuff where with your phone or eventually with glasses, the pair on top was uh, announced without the little eye things in the front just as see through yesterday. So things are moving very, very quickly Um, but the idea is very much. that you see the world around you, but that computer graphics people can draw things on top of it. How useful would it be to have name tags floating above people's heads when you look through your glasses, for example, right? How useful would it be to have your glasses superimposed on some sign, hey Steve, you've gone too far, turn left on Bay Street, right? Um, That kind of stuff. Uh, there's nightmare scenarios designers are coming up with of what your kitchen is going to look like when you let advertising pay for all this uh, and stuff isn't working well and so on, but this is pretty much where state-of-the-art research papers are being published right now, which is uh, the thing is there on the desk in front of you um, and uh, you can see through it and the lighting is all correct and so on. And it's like working in one guy's lab only on Wednesdays, but that's, that's coming soon. So um, that's all I have to talk about. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Okay. By the way, I want a couch, cow couch, (laughs) in my living room. So whenever you're ready to start manufacturing those, let me. They're they're only $10,000. Hey! (laughs) A week's work, right? (laughs) Okay. Weird. Oh, there we go. Slide show. All right. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a few different things. Um, my talk is called Creating Illusion in the War Effort. That's not exactly what I'm going to stick to. We'll start there um, and then veer off. But my entry into this project actually came from my interest in the history of magic and conjuring, knowing that Jasper Maskelyne, a magician, was part of a team that worked on camouflage. And so I. First, uh, I think, was talking to Mary about that and said, I'm very interested in that. Can I uh, kind of join your team? And they said, sure. It worked out well because I'm also the associate curator of the Theatre Research Institute, so I ended up doing the, um, being the curator of the exhibition. And that was great. Uh, and in the process, we found out masculine kind of, again, similar to some of the scenic designers. He drifted into the exhibition, didn't quite make it into the show. So I'm going to talk just a little bit about him. But then I think I'm going to go and kind of veer off more into some of the things that Roy was talking about and a little bit about misdirection magic and the way that that intersects with the idea of camouflage. So this is Jasper Maskelyne. Um, he was actually born into a very established family of British magicians. His grandfather was John Neville Maskelyne. Any of you who know magic history at all will recognize that name. Um, so here's Jasper. This is his grandpa John Neville Maskelyne. He was a stage magician who was um, became famous when he and his friend George Cook recreated the act of the uh, fraudulent spiritualist, the Davenport brothers, who used to tour around with their spirit cabinet, and the doors would shut, and folks would they would be tied up in there. And then as soon as the doors closed, they would hear things, tambourines ringing, and hands would come out, and so forth. And finally, the doors would open, and they'd be in there tied up. And of course, it was the spirits that, was, that were doing all of this. Um, but um, Maskelen discovered their trick, and recreated, he and his friend George Cook recreated the act, but they told everybody that it was a fake and that they were magicians, but they could do the exact same thing. They became very popular and um, in 1873 Maskelyne and Cook established their own theater in London's uh, famed Egyptian Hall. It used to be a museum and um, then turned into a place that kind of became the home base for a lot of magic and conjurers. This is the facade of uh, the Egyptian Hall, what the Egyptian Hall used to look like. Here is a quick uh, kind of um, poster of some of the things. You know I love this one with my interest in horror and so forth, but uh, masculine and Cook uh, illustrating their uh, illustration of the new feature of someone getting their head cut off. Um, Jasper's father Neville Maskelyne was also a noted stage magician and so Jasper continued in the family business took up the craft and was working as a professional stage conjurer and um, it was these skills that he decided to offer to the war effort. Um, In 1940 he joined the Royal Engineers with the Camouflage Development and Training Center and uh, (laughs) thought you know this is a great idea as we've been hearing a lot of the theater folks and magicians um, We're already using some of these same skills that uh, could be useful in war and so he said hey how about let me give it a shot um, in his autobiography Indigo Days Trevelyan writes that um, disappearing was masculine's profession and he was called in whenever anyone wished anything to become invisible um, one of the things that he made invisible was tank tracks so very very simple kinds of techniques but uh, those of us who uh, are in theater and in magic um, know that oftentimes the simpler the better, right? Uh, The more simple it is the less you have to go wrong. So this is something that would be drug behind a tank and um, would basically erase the tracks. Just as simple as that. It's just like a little plow feature. And You can see this is actually uh, masculine here pointing to where the tracks would be But they're concealed, and you can see the unconcealed and the concealed tracks, and of course you can see the usefulness very much so of going through the desert and um, not wanting the enemy to know that you had just, you know, had a whole lot of tanks going through there. Um, So these tank drags were part of the things that he and his folks worked on. Um, in 1941, Maskelyne arrives in Egypt and, and starts to work on a camouflage unit uh, with some other folks who were involved in, involved in stagecraft. Um, started making dummy tanks, they started working on fire resistant cream, this kind of thing. Um, and uh, he gathered kind of a group of 14 assistants, uh, an architect, art restorer, carpenter, chemist, Et cetera, et cetera, and these folks were called the Magic Gang. Now I'm a little hesitant in telling you this because part of this story reminds me very much of some of the things that we were talking about yesterday. Um, there has been a lot of controversy and speculation about this, and actually some folks who have gone through the archives question this very much. There really is no hard evidence that the Magic Gang existed. I'm sorry to tell you if you were <laughs> uh, 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 dead set on believing that but um, I don't have a lot of time to go into that but if you want to talk about it later and the website that our camouflage website points to the masculine website is the website that is actually the debunking website (laughs) that but I mean it's okay because it's the one that's out there but this is the fellow um, a fellow by the name of Richard Stokes who has gone back and kind of really fine tooth comb some of the claims and the information that's come out about Maskelyne and say, well, we really don't have anything that corroborates that. So where does the information come from? Um, In 1949, Jasper Maskelyne wrote, quote unquote wrote, it was actually ghostwritten, an account of his wartime career entitled Magic Top Secret and it, the ghostwriter. There's speculation that the ghostwriter is actually the person who added a lot of this intrigue and information, and really made masculine a central character in this whole war effort. Um, and it's kind of like you know, again, this uh, this mythology. I'm thinking about you know Odette and all of these kinds of same kinds of things. Where is the information coming from, and what is the purpose? it's a very interesting intersection with this whole idea of memory and mass, you know, um, camouflage and uh, also, you know, how we kind of remake and camouflage our own stories in a way. Um, Then, uh, later in 1983, David Fisher writes a book called The War Magician and um, this is the really romanticized version of Masculine Story and so now we have documentaries being made off of the book The Warm Magician which was taken from the fabricated recollection of Jasper Maskelyne's own ghost written autobiography Magic Top Secret and on and on so you can see how this stuff kind of spins itself out so I just do that as a caveat to say when I'm kind of showing you and telling you some of this stuff um, it's always kind of three times removed <laughs> as far as word-of-mouth. It's the old, telephone, the old telephone game, right? So anyway, let me give you some more visual images here. These are some things that we know that Maskelyne did actually work on. In fact, this is a little model that uh, here down in the far, would be the right corner for you guys. Um, the, the tank shields that he would have these shields that would, uh, sun shields that would wrap around the tanks to disguise them so that they would look like trucks, and you can see that actually in action up here um, on the top left. They also did the opposite where they would disguise um, trucks as tanks so that they would think make the enemy think so that there were tanks in other places and then we've also seen the idea of kind of these inflatable tanks easily moved, easily carried. Uh, relocated and so forth. So those are some of the things that he did actually work on and um, was involved with. There is also a story that he hid the Suez Canal with his magic gang. Again, um, a very questionable story that's got a lot of uh, (laughs) a lot of um, history and conjecture and so forth, but one of the things they said that he did this with was a set of lights called dazzle lights and these were kind of the prototypes and the prototypes of the dazzle lights similar to work uh... in a similar way of dazzle of a disruption of a pattern disruption of a kind of blinding situation where these would be used to confuse and um... kind of uh... misdirect the folks who were supposedly trying to bomb Um, uh... again questionable and some of the dates don't jive so again this is where this kind of idea of what's really true comes in. Um, so I'm going to kind of leave this here. Uh, this is this is a Jasper Maskelyne's book. I'm going to kind of leave that there and just sit that with you, because I don't really want to go into a lot of detail about how he did this stuff and when he did it, because we're not sure he did it. Um, and instead, I want to talk a little bit about, again, some of this. <laughs> idea of why magicians and theater artists and filmmakers are the ideal people to turn to in war. Um, It's in Nick Rankin's book, he talks about Jeffrey Barkas had been in the British film industry for years and he ended up a camouflage officer in the Royal Engineers and a quote from him is, the greatest and most respected of military commanders have usually been masters of fraud. All generals do their best to mystify the enemy by false threats or movements and that's exactly what these folks were doing. Um, We use the same techniques. We've talked about it. We control focus. We use misdirection. Uh, We use framing. We want you to look in a certain place. There might be something happening just outside of the frame, but we don't want you to see that. So we're going to misdirect you over here. And we want to create, oftentimes, the illusion of normalcy. That's an important concept, especially for magicians. Um, There's a very, very famous magician, Di Vernon, called the Professor, really reinvented the craft and one of the things that he would talk about in sleight of hand was that you need to make the motions that you're doing look as if they, sh- they should be done there. You don't want to do something weird that's going to draw attention to it. So you need to use techniques that would mimic normalcy, that would mimic your everyday motions, your everyday gestures. Um, So these kind of visual principles and things that uh, magicians, theater artists, filmmakers use play upon the same visual principles that a lot of the camouflage artists are using. And the way we get away with that is because cognition, cognitive studies, the way that our brains work are similar. We have this common physiology, this common way that we see things, to a point, at least. And um, that can help those of us who want to trick people into figuring out methods and ways to do that. Uh, I wanna, There's a couple of things I think is really want to get to. Uh, these are decoy heads, so again, you can see the theatricality here. I mean, who else to make these but theater artists, right? Um, the heads, they pop them up. So if there's a sniper out there, they'll shoot at the heads and give away their position. And nobody that's on our side or uh, on this side with the decoy heads is um, harmed. And it helps give them away. Uh, we talked about the trees. Here's some. And you can see the interior of the skeleton of the trees um, that were made. Again, it looks, like a th- it looks like our scene shop, you know? I mean, it really, it really does. Uh, put our guys in some uniforms. You could take the same photo right? right over there in Drake. This is another thing that we talk about with the whole idea of breaking up patterns and um, kind of covering. There's a reason that magicians oftentimes work in front of curtains like this. This is a, a I'm not sure if it's the best um, example of, of photograph, but it's a metallic curtain. You know, you've seen them, those metallic kind of fringy curtains. They're great if you want to hang something on a string. Nobody can see that string when you've got this dazzle, right, the same kind of effect or this blinding effect that's coming at you. It's a perfect cover. It's a perfect camouflage for those types of things, um, as well as kind of fooling your eye. There's all kinds of pattern interruption and visual noise happening that takes you away from what we don't want you to look at. Again, we talk about the way we see things. The, and you've, probably many of you have seen these... Uh, kinds of uh, optical illusions before. The lines are parallel. But it's difficult because of the way that we perceive colors and shapes and patterns to see them that way. Even if you know they're that way, you can't see them that way. And this reminds me very much of the dazzle pattern. I mean when you look at it, that whole idea of breaking things up and making sure that it's, you know, or trying to figure out um, which direction is it going. What is the spacing? the spacing gets all messed up. This one is a common one, it's probably most of you've seen, we're talking figure ground here. Visual ambiguity, you can see it as a, a vase, you can see it as two faces, depending, and you're, you can make yourself shift back and forth, but it's ambiguous, it's not one or the other. Here's another one. You may at first see the word illusion, but if you look at the white space, you'll see another word. Everybody see it? right optical yes so again uh, this whole idea of figure ground what's the figure what's the ground what's in front what's behind this is a great one too usually the face pops out first but then if you look carefully and try to read the white writing says liar right so again it's this whole idea and to think about how that for these these concepts they work for almost all of us that's really saying something about how human beings process information um, I really like this one this is a fun one okay normally you will see the figure ground You see the black parts is anybody can anybody read the words yes if you squint your eyes sometimes it helps can everybody see it what's it say <laughs> no sex causes bad eyes, <laughs> is what it says, yeah, absolutely. Um, so so this is the kind of stuff that just really fascinates me because it is just the absolute intersection of theater and history, camouflage, the whole idea of how we interact and how we um, process information, which is important to those of us who want to make uh, 3D object modeling, make films, make theater, make anything to know how that's going to be received and how that's going to impact our audience. Okay, um, there's one more thing I want to play. It's about maybe three to five minutes. Are we cool? It's just too good to not... Uh, this, is, I want, this is going to be another little... Um, this is from a BBC uh, documentary. there's really brilliant documentary on how the brain and mind works. Um, There's there's a concept called change blindness and it's where very, very large things, large changes can be made and we don't notice them because of many of the things that Roy was talking about this morning of the way we process information. There's so much information coming in we can only get a very small part. This is an experiment uh, that was done and uh, I'm just going to play it through and let you watch it um, and uh, without too much setup here. The difference between these two men seems obvious. Their faces are different, their
5: hair is different, even their shirts are a different color. And yet an experiment by
4: psychologists Dan Simons and Chris Chabrie at Harvard reveals that our brains actually process very little of what comes in through the eyes.
5: In this experiment, a subject um, comes up to a counter and. The first experimenter hands them a consent form. As soon as they finish signing the consent form, they hand it back to the first experimenter, who then takes the consent form, ducks down behind the counter to put it away, and a different experimenter then stands up and hands the subject a packet of information and sends them into a hallway where we ask them questions about it. This wonderful experiment
4: uncovers an aspect of the brain's attention system known as change blindness.
5: Change blindness is the idea that we often miss large changes to our visual world from one view to the next. We're often not able to see large changes that would appear to be perfectly obvious to somebody who knows they're going to happen.
4: And incredibly, in 75% of cases, the subjects don't notice a thing.
5: The lady who took me up here, she opened the door for me and told me to walk over to the desk. I think there was a sign that said experiment, Mm
4: -hmm.
5: and a man there gave me a form to sign. Mm -hmm.
4: There was the guy standing under a big sign that said experiment, Mm -hmm. Um, and to my left there was like a pot with some Mm -hmm. dirt in it and some plastic containers. Uh, Is
2: it the fifth?
5: Yes. Oh, I filled out a form. Okay.
2: How long would it be about before... Uh,
5: and I asked him how long it would take and he said about
2: 10-15 minutes or so. I guess I have the time to do that.
5: Did you notice anything unusual at all uh, after you signed the consent form? I just signed it and I didn't even pay attention to anything that was written on it. Okay. Yeah. Um, after, after you handed it back to him, um, mm-hmm. did you notice anything unusual happen at all? If you could just take this into the next No,
2: room. No, I uh, I probably wasn't even
5: looking that direction. I probably okay. turned and looked towards the clear door. I saw some people there. Okay. And then I turned back and looked at him for a second. Okay. Did you notice anything unusual at all after you signed the consent form? No. This is only going to take five to ten minutes.
3: Yeah. Okay. It'll take,
5: it'll be real short. Okay. The person who stood up was actually a different person. <laughs> okay. Um, I gather you didn't notice no. that that was different? No. A different person actually stood up and handed you this form, um, and sent you out toward me. Um, I gather from your action, you didn't notice that? No. Okay. Um, don't, don't feel bad about that, actually. Uh, most of the time we find about 75% of people don't notice. you uh, serious? Yeah. The person who stood up with the packet was actually a different person. Wow. Than, uh, than the first person. That is um, incredible. So I gather, I gather you didn't see it. Then. I didn't catch that, no. Okay. What's really interesting is that some people notice these changes and other people don't notice these changes. And we really don't yet have a good idea what separates those people who don't from those people who do. It might be that there are individual differences and some people are better able to detect these sorts of changes. But it's also possible that it's just coincidence that the people who noticed it just happened to be focusing on a feature that changed. They just happened to be paying attention to the color of the person's shirt. And the people who failed to notice it just happened to be paying attention to something else.
4: The brain's attention system allows us actively to select what to look at. It makes us very good at concentrating on tasks, but it can also make us miss something happening right in front of our eyes. So that um, the whole series is well worth looking into, but. This idea of change blindness and and uh, kind of misdirection, so to sum up, what does this have to do? Well, when I saw this, i thought wow doesn 't that really have something to say about some of these agents who were moving in and among this world with these folks who seven, at least seventy five percent of them were just going to accept that no matter what they saw, it was just the norm you know, and we talked about that. Um, but then the other scary part is what's going on with that other twenty-five percent, you know? And is that the twenty-five percent that might have noticed something or might have not been fooled by the camouflage that really caused us trouble? So um, this just a, a quick wrap up. This whole cognitive science thing. This is the Scientific American. This was actually a thing from December of 2010. Your brain on magic how tricks hack your neural wiring. Um, it's, it's talking somewhat about some of the gang and folks that Roy was mentioning. And uh, we got another project in the making. This is the official manual of trickery and deception uh, that was written for the CIA that actually was during the Cold War was written by John Mulholland, another magician. A copy just surfaced, They've, and it's got exactly some of the same kind of stuff that we've been talking about. So they're still using magicians, theater artists, et cetera, et cetera, in this world. And um, I think there's a lot of fruitful uh, projects left for us to all explore together. So thank you very much for your attention. thought about setting up, you know, a whole misdirection thing, having a loud noise, and I thought, I'm not going to have time to do that, but, um, yeah, that's a great
0: idea. Hi, Lucy, Dan. When did female camouflage, if ever, uh, surface, uh, and the same question really for seating designers. Like I mean, you, you, gave, you gave us five examples, they are all you know, very fascinating. Right. Um, is there a is there a kind of was there a moment when things changed or were good? And I mean, it's interesting.
1: It's still a, a field that's fairly male dominated. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I I don't have any you know no, exact data at no, 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 and really I certainly uh, I didn't find any evidence of yeah. you know, theatrical named theatrical uh, uh, designers who work were, were female doers But if I could mention, uh, just in recent
2: weeks, I've been accessing a lot of, uh, a large number of newspaper articles uh, from the World War I era. And they're talking about women. But they're saying that women in our society are the most expert camouflage And that what they're doing is they're fooling men. And so there are these large articles on makeup, are large articles, especially are on dress design and how they the designs are analogous to dazzle distortion because it makes uh, overweight women look uh, better than, you know in order to attract men or something. I mean, it's it's really very disgusting stuff. And it, of course, it <laughs> comes right along with the racist stuff that's happening with newspapers at the time and things of that. But there's a lot of material like that. I was really surprised. If I can go back to my question to you, Roy, right? sometimes what you have in your brain is not what comes out of your mouth. And I didn't mean opera. I'm Sorry, I meant poplar. Okay. And that, I, what I see are, you know, a series of concentric circles and colors that disappear and vanish and things like that. You um, that? I is actually heard poplar. I actually heard you say Op Art. So. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> Good. <Yeah. laughs> but when you mention Andy Warhol, no. so oh, okay. I see. Okay, thank you. So I wonder whether military training takes this into account, and there would be adaptation that the, 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 the camouflage would have to become increasingly sophisticated during World War I and World War II.
4: Well, digital camouflage would mm-hmm. changed. I know that they've been doing things in terms of
2: making digital camouflers and you see that now that's probably what seen twenty years old
4: by this time and I, I presume there must be some discussion about the, its the efficacy from um, the more organically shaped camouflage that they should
2: cause
1: And I would think too, we talked about the notion of point of view, I mean the op again, I'm not an expert, but I would imagine that the optics to be able to see something greater distances and, you know, to to be able to, I mean, the the decoy heads are great, but, you know, if you had high-powered binoculars, it's pretty clear that those are what they are. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, there's probably a a level of sophistication required that maybe wasn't previously. So the digital pattern camouflage uniforms
2: now are Primarily directed toward uh, electronic uh, detection and yeah. not mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. yeah. right. sure. And There's research now on those integrations
4: of the beetles, right? I do think it's uh, more universal, so it's a universal pattern that works in the desert or in the forest or whatever. Then mm-hmm. yeah, I'm
2: interested in the camouflage society. Yeah. Um,
1: designers, do you know more about them and how long they lasted and were there are any reference places? Uh, and Troy, maybe you can help me with this, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ron came up with some information about it, but there's not a whole lot of documentation regarding you know, how long this lasted. And I mean, there are lists of membership but. Um, that, uh, I did not come
4: across a whole lot of information about it. But they found two individuals. One was a Russian artist, and there was another individual who whom um, they solicited
2: basically to teach them these techniques. So it, it's maybe not so much the looking at them and knowing that, but there had to be this sort of training time and um, making that connection between his mastery as a secret designer and. The military application or the uh, military application of these skills. I think it kind of the off the information. That many of these people were joining prior to the war or, or in the anticipation that they wouldn't have to serve in the front, that they could maybe serve in some other safer uh, capacity. That happened in World War One with visual arts. Many of them went, before we went into the war, they joined the American Chemical Society in New York. Uh, got trained, and then when the war actually happened, they didn't volunteer as camouflage. Uh, and I believe the same thing happened with the camouflage side. Maybe in theatrical, in a large uh, percentage, that they were trained by these two guys, uh, and then when the war actually happened, they didn't actually become uh, camouflage. There, there's a, I have the manual, the Russian guys, manual, or what became. But it was all given to me by Ron, Ron Everson, the subject.